the advocate of not waxing Fuller V uh, coming up the sidelines and just <laughs> snatching balls all over the place. So hello and welcome to All Four Quarters, your one-stop shop for news, views and overreactions to all things NFL. This week we'll be looking at all the news coming out of week one, uh, some of the injuries, some of the signings and some of the uh, some of the other issues that have been happening. Uh, we're going to have a look at some of the games, some good, some bad, some dumpster fires and we're going to look forward to our picks for week two. So hey guys, Connor here. We've got uh, Ronan. Hello. And we've got Harry. Hey. So hey guys, what's the crack? Do you remember that thing I used to have before football called sleep? Vaguely, yeah. I, I miss it. <laughs> yeah, um, you're, you you stayed up and watched them all last night every, live. Every single game live uh, this, this weekend and I'm dead. Mm. And uh, no, no spoilers for what might be discussed later in the podcast, but I'm really regretting it after uh, Monday night. <laughs> It was uh, yes. It was maybe not worth the uh, the extra hours, even if it was football. <laughs> well, I mean, football is generous. <laughs> yeah, football is a generous term. What about yourself, Ronan? Any crack? Yeah, I got a bit more sleep, but uh, otherwise, yeah, just uh, getting back into that football red zone, all that mindset, and just taking it all in. Good weekend overall. Yeah, no, I must say, actually, it was a very impressive week one. Uh, as you'll probably hear later on when we're discussing all the games, we had to cut down the games we we're going to discuss quite a bit, uh, just so we could give them all a bit of time. But uh, yeah, outside of that, uh, I enjoyed it, but uh, I had to kind of cut my Sunday night a little bit short. I was heading off, uh, started a new job there on Monday, so I'm now two days in, and I spent some of today prepping this podcast. So that's how that's going. Uh, <laughs> something we discussed briefly beforehand in the preseason uh, issue of protecting quarterbacks. This is something that sometimes comes to the fore, particularly so this weekend. The one that I'm going to talk about predominantly here is probably going to be Carolina. Uh, we saw on the Thursday night game, Denver going after Cam, something fierce. There was four helmet-to-helmet hits uh, delivered to him. Uh, as we discussed earlier, Harry, I think one of them might have been incidental rather than intentional, but there was definitely a degree to which targeting was happening there. The initial conversation that came out of it was about independent medical observers in the crowd and then being able to call for concussion testing and to remove players, albeit temporarily four tests, which I agree with 100%. But for that to be effective, you need to pair that with a more aggressive calling of these egregious fouls on the field. Because if you're going to put this into a situation where you're not going to properly protect the quarterback and you providing those helmet hits can remove probably the most valuable player on the field in most scenarios without repercussions, then this is a large issue. Like, I suppose I'll come to you first on this, Harry, because we had a chat about this over the weekend. How do you think they are doing at protecting the quarterback? What do you think could change? Well, I think there's, there's two things that you mentioned. Um, firstly, about the independent medical advisors. And this is something I didn't know until I actually watched that broadcast, and it was mentioned by the broadcast team. But while the independent medical advisor can do an assessment, unless the player has, like, a basically been concussed beforehand, it's the team doctor's decision whether or not to take them out of the game. So that was the first thing that really surprised me, was that they did a brief test on Newton, but he didn't actually go through the protocol properly because the team doctor said, oh no, he's fine, we don't need to take him out, we don't need to do the test, he didn't actually get tested until after the game. Now that in and of itself is, is concerning and something that makes a bit of a mockery of the whole independent assessment process that they've got in place. But like you said, that all becomes moot when the quarterback isn't being protected properly in the first place. And you have to look at the situation. Yeah, one of them was, as you said, quite rightly incidental, but the hits from Brandon Marshall and Darian Stewart in particular, only one of which was flagged, it didn't really 
have any negative impact for Denver for making those plays. Like these are guys leaving their feet, lunging in with the crown of the helmet directly at the quarterback's head. Helmet there is, to helmet hits, like it's yeah. just. And it was they were nasty, and there's an element of it being like, oh, it's Cam Newton, he's a big boy, he plays rough, he can take it, which is, is nonsense. Like, the referees need to make sure they're enforcing these things consistently. Like, if that's a foul on Drew Brees, or Tom Brady, or whoever, that's a foul on Cam Newton. You can't have it both ways and be like, oh, some quarterbacks should be protected more than others, some guys run around a bit, so they're going to get hit. And it's like, well, those kind of hits, you know, are pretty questionable anyway. But if if it's happening to a quarterback, it's happening to a quarterback, it doesn't matter his play style. And that sort of excuse needs to, needs to just go out the window. Secondly, I think you really need to look at it. If there is a case of targeting like this, look at what we've seen with the league, with the new ejection rules, with the idea of being like, this is a uh, unsportsmanlike penalty or whatever. If you get a certain number of those, you can be removed from the field. Two, yeah. yeah. Why don't you look at something similar for this and be like, okay, if you commit two flagrantly violent helmet-to-helmet hits, well, this why is, are you not being th- removed th- from th- the field? This is the issue. that The classification is that they should be removed from the field in that scenario. And as we said, even though it was incidental, so maybe you've got a bit of wiggle room there, Vaughn Miller should have been turfed out of this game because of this and because but of the new regulations. I think they're called as, as personal fouls rather than unsportsmanlike conduct. So I think they're actually under a different category in how they in how they approach the ejections. And you kind of have to look at, right, do we want to broaden that category or maybe recategorize these and say there's a certain type of quarterback hit that is flagrant and egregious and needs to be considered as a more serious foul than a standard personal foul or roughing the passer. What about yourself, Ronan? Yeah, no, I agree with most of what Harry says. Like, I do, to a certain extent, think that this is to somewhat a Cam Newton issue because Cam Newton is such a unique type of quarterback. And you're like, those things, if they happened to Drew Brees or Tom Brady, they would have got flagged. Probably, yes, but if that had happened to, you know, a running back like David Johnson or Adrian Peterson... Would they have considered dangerous play? Would those have been flagged? And the problem is that Cam Newton, if he evades your initial pressure or a pass rush, does effectively become a running back. And I think that's where some of this, uh, like basically some of the ambiguity is coming in in the case of Cam Newton and to a lesser extent players like Russell Wilson. And like I don't think that should be sufficient. And I think in these cases, you should be able to differentiate. But these people are like these quarterbacks are operating as pocket passers when they're operating more like running backs. But that ambiguity there, I think, is part of the reason why referees don't flag them as quickly for those type of players as they do for the more classic prototypical quarterback. I, I, that, that's not an excuse. And this kind of goes back to the controversy that we saw with Ed Hockley last year saying that Cam Newton was too young to get these kind of calls. But I can kind of understand where they're coming from about that ambiguity does exist to some extent and about the differences in how we treat the safety of quarterbacks versus that of running backs, for example, in the offense as a whole. As it stands, how would you like to see rules amended? Like, is it a greater definition between when they're classified as quarterbacks and when they're classified as runners outside of just the concept of the tackle box or whatever or like how would you like to see it approached well obviously i would i would like to see the the suspension rule indicated by harry brought in it's such a difficult question to make but i think you have to err on the side of quarterback safety because you know like these quarterbacks there's only 32 of them and especially with two of these like running more agile quarterbacks being effectively the future of the NFL or the future faces of the NFL, if not the current faces, you can't afford not to have excessive protection for them. But I can see why referees right now under the current rules are ambiguous about that. Maybe there should be a situation where we think about the safety of players who are also involved in running, the running backs, and how we can have a bit more uh, protection of players overall rather than just thinking about quarterbacks as being these individual special people because the, the as the lines blur between quarterbacks and running backs 
and other offensive pieces, we need to have more safety for other players and kind of bring that in, in as a whole. If we want quarterbacks to be able to do these more exciting things and be more diverse players, we need to have some recognition that players who do similar roles in the offense should have that protection, perhaps as a quid pro quo, for allowing that protection come to quarterbacks as well. Harry? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really interesting point, and I think that makes sense. Um, that there is, I suppose there's always certainly an element with the football. You know, it's a physical game, and it should be a physical game, but I think there's certainly a line you can draw. Like, take a guy like Brandon Merriweather, who made his entire career out of headhunting hits like that, which, you know, sometimes they're flagged, sometimes they're not. And I think often it depends on the player who's doing it. Do they have a reputation for being dirty themselves? But I definitely think there's more that can be done to protect runners. And I know a few years ago they obviously brought in that runners themselves can't leave with the crown on their helmet because that's dangerous for defenders. So it's like, well, why then should a defender be allowed to spear into another player's helmet just because they've become a runner? And I suppose, like I said at the start, I think the one thing that needs to be maintained with whatever way they want to approach this issue going forward, it has to be the idea of balancing between the idea of the protection of the quarterback but also the punishment of people who are going against this. This is not just an issue of protection, it's also an issue of unfair advantage that can occur. Because as we said, if you look at this as something that can cause a Aaron Rodgers, a Tom Brady to have to come off the field for 15 minutes to go through a protocol while your team is then not punished for that, that is a that is a t- tactical advantage that coaches would be stupid to not approach, even though they should have the health interest of the players at heart. So I think there is a large reassessment to be taking place within the NFL about how they protect. And you're right, Roland, not just quarterbacks, everyone, but this is just a particularly strong example that we saw happen this week and also in the preseason two or three times. Um, the next thing we're going to talk about is, uh, again, really uplifting stuff so far this week, boys. Uh, <laughs> racism and the national anthem. We've seen uh, an expansion of the players who are taking stances uh, during the, or not taking stances during the national anthem. A number of teams responded with linking arms and showing unity. It was a particularly interesting weekend for it, given that it was the anniversary of 9-11 during the games. And in a number of places, a video was shown of Barack Obama who was uh, booed by the fans in a number of stadiums, uh, who would then simultaneously accuse someone who was kneeling for a national anthem of not being patriotic enough, which (laughs) confuses the shit out of me. A number of additional players got involved in this, uh, including one of my players, uh, say my players, my team's players, uh, Marcus Peters holding up a blank pa- Black Panther's fist uh, during the National Anthem. He wasn't alone. I think there was another player who did that as well. Quite a few, actually. Yeah, so, like, this seems to be something that's growing in the number of people who are involved in it. Uh, they even have members of the female US soccer team uh, taking knees during the National Anthem. Did you see the response they made to that as well? They decided that they didn't want to deal with the issue, so they played the National Anthem while the team were still in the locker room. Oh my god. <laughs> so guys, what's our take on how this story is progressing? Is this something that's going somewhere, or is this something that's going to peter out after two or three weeks? Well, if Tebowing and Dabbing can go on an entire season, then I don't see why national anthem protests can't, you know? It's like, <laughs> surely, like, uh, maybe these are less uh, camera-friendly or less uh, meme-friendly, but yeah, no, this is an important protest, and I think just like when you look at something like Kaepernick's jersey suddenly becoming the highest-selling jersey in, like, the last few weeks, that kind of shows there is a lot of interest in this. Like, you know, we often forget this, but obviously the National Football League is very overrepresented with the amount of African Americans who play in it. Um, obviously, that has a major effect on what choices they tend to make. And the expectation over the last 10 years or so is the NFL has 
basically gone into the stratosphere in terms of popularity has been to you know shut up and put up and just make your money and then protect your brand. And of course, there's plenty of players still doing that. You know, primarily probably many of the quarterbacks who are starting wouldn't be wouldn't feel comfortable going that way. But you know, a lot of players who perhaps aren't in such a high-profile position who wouldn't be as much of a target who kind of can meld more into the background are now choosing to make themselves known and make sure that people are aware of the issues that are happening in America right now. As we mentioned last week, the U.S. election obviously provides an interesting insight into what's going on in that in general, and obviously all the shootings and stuff is a very real and tangible illustration of that. But I think this will kind of go on a kind of wildcat basis for a while, but I don't know (laughs) if this will be happening like in week 17 or not. Uh, Or at least I don't think it will be mentioned by the media. It seems like the kind of thing that people would be happy to ignore if they can get away with it. So if it only becomes a few isolated players, I don't imagine they'll get too much media coverage by that point. Good. Uh, can I can I commend you, Ronan, on saying those things here rather than online, where you would immediately become a pariah for the equivalence you've put to some of these social movements of this is the wildcat of protests. <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't say it was. A... No, no, hang on, hang on. What while the wildcat does mean something in football, I, I think Ronan was probably referring more to the idea of a wildcat strike in the uh, industrial action I, sense I, I, of the I word. I don't know if he was. <laughs> Uh, no, that was what I was referring <laughs> to. Watch him rowing it back, rowing yeah. it back. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, I I think this is going to endure, to be honest with you. Um, I agree with Ronan that, that it is important. And I mean, I don't know if you guys saw uh, Charles Woodson uh, the other day. Basically, he just talked about, you know, how he grew up and his love for America. But then he was like, after this, I went and I looked at the anthem a bit more. And like, okay, so... They feel like this doesn't represent them as African Americans. As an African American, he went and looked it up and was like, "Oh, the guy who wrote it was a slave owner." And he's like, "Well, then, when I hear it talk about the land of the free, if this guy owns slaves, that's not about my freedom." Mm-hmm. I think it's actually causing more people to ask, and I don't think it's just like always people are like, "Oh, yeah, they're just you know, it's just copycat. It's just spreading." It's not like I think people, are, these players, are genuinely looking at their country and looking at the history of this thing and being like, "Hang on, this doesn't represent me, and I need to do something here because of everything that's going on around it." The argument is about now what America represents in a lot of senses, mm. which is obviously you know getting quite heavy for a football football chat, but genuinely, you know, people forget these are people. They're not just football players. They have lives, they exist in the context that we all do, they have their backgrounds, they know people, the people around them, just because they are highly successful athletes, A does not mean that their lives are free of discrimination, and B means that a lot of people around them don't mm. have the advantages they have, and they can see this happening day to day. So I don't think it's just going to go away, and I think it's part of a broader social movement, uh, more consciousness now among, and I think, more, well, a more public consciousness, I'd say, among mm-hmm. African Americans being willing to interrogate sort of some of the uh, received knowledge about what America is and how America works. I think that's becoming more and more public, and I see this sort of thing within the NFL as being part of that broader movement. And then when we see, like you said, Marcus Peters doing the Black Panther salute, uh, both the McCourty brothers, uh, Jarrell Casey and uh, Martellus Bennett as well mm-hmm. for Tennessee and New England did it, and there were a few. Um, a few players in the Rams and uh, San Fran game that did it as well. So I think this is becoming a thing, and it's not just about the action itself. And the problem is so much of the discussion is just about the action itself. It's 9-11. Is it respectful? Is it not respectful? Mm-hmm. But it's not about the action. It's about the conversation that's being started. It's about Colin Kaepernick giving money to charity. It's about the Niners, who, for all of their problems in the organization, actually just doing the right thing and being like, we are going to match Colin Kaepernick's yeah. million-dollar donation. It's about making people ask questions and saying, why are we here? Why are things the way they are? 
and seeing people who have sort of, in inverted commas, broken out of some of that system to find success in their own terms, still being affected by it and still saying we are still conscious of where we come from. So no, I don't think it's going to go away. I think we can make as many jokes as we want about people buying Kaepernick's jersey to burn it, but a lot of people are obviously buying it because they respect the hell out of what he did. Mm -hmm. So there's not much the NFL itself can do. But it's going to be interesting to see how long this goes on and where, whether or not the players are able to push this conversation towards where they want it to be and where it needs to be. What do you think the end point of this is? I don't know. I think that comes down to the it, it, it is part of the broader social thing. And I think it's as this spreads, as more people discuss this, can you change perceptions in society and is this part of making the change in those perceptions it's not something like i said that's going to be fixed within the nfl or something that the nfl players directly themselves are just going to magically come up with a solution for but it's part of building a movement and building a consciousness and being able to make change and that's yeah that's going to take a long time so this might this might go on for a while yet not to get overly political on it but the reason i don't think it's going to last is because of that general lack of cohesion of the issue like carl kaepernick changed his protest in a week and then all of the other products we've seen have been incredibly different and while there's obviously a lot of value in the diversity of those that kind of strikes me as exactly the kind of movement which isn't likely to sustain itself because it has no central vision of what it's trying to achieve like you know getting overly political it kind of reminds me of the Occupy movement and that kind of stuff but it's hard not to come to the conclusion that by the end of the season I don't think we'll have an identity of what this was trying to achieve and what it has achieved and therefore it's not likely something that really makes an impact that perhaps these players would like it to do I think that's unfortunately, again, not to be overly political, I think that's something that's symptomatic of, of the entire Black Lives Matter kind of thing. The end game is is unclear. Mm. Um, it's, and it's like you start the... I think the players want to start the conversation, but once that conversation starts, where it goes and how you get it to go to the end, I don't, I don't know. If they put a white middle-aged executive in charge, maybe they'll get something done. <laughs> Oh wow! Okay. That's a that's a classic onion thing about feminism, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember the article actually. Yeah, but no, like it is. It's it's interesting. I think it's definitely something we're going to be seeing for the next couple of weeks. Anyway, uh, like I said, I agree. I'm not sure what longevity there is in it or what the end game is. Like I understand it's more about making a statement and trying to change conversation, but I think there's probably diverse conversations that are want want to be held about this not kind of just a well we should probably talk about like these guys yeah i i'd see it being the kind of thing that'll further out but not without at least making a positive inroad into kind of opening up conversations around race and kind of american identity which you know can be good but could also end up having very minimal effect so we'll see how it how it plays out and now on to an even more positive story injuries <laughs> So we've had a few injuries now in the uh, in the first week here. So we've uh, we'll run through a few of them and discuss them as we as we go. Uh, the probably the biggest one uh, that I spotted was the San Diego injury. Uh, Keenan Allen, who was having a great first half, uh, he tried to cut in, and his I'm not sure if his studs got stuck on the turf or whether it was just that he turned awkwardly on his knee, but he collapsed in a non-contact injury was carted off the field in tears and uh, we've had confirmation since that it's uh, a fully torn ACL and he is out for the season. Given this is his first game back after missing eight weeks with a lacerated kidney, which is just a horrifying sounding injury. Like, I know ACLs are bad, but lacerated kidney, it's like, how do you even do that? Um, This is a big blow to San Diego. It's also a big blow to Keenan Allen himself, uh, who was looking on the up and up. Uh, I'm going to come to you on this first, Ronan. What do you think of the impact of of this Keenan Allen injury? 
cannot be overstated. Like I think Keenan Allen is a number one wide receiver, and he is the wide receiver who made that San Diego offense. Like he is the difference between San Diego being kind of a, a wild card contender, possibly even pushing a little bit further to being just another middle of the road team like Chicago or whatever. I think without Keenan Allen, that offense we already saw in the game, as we'll discuss later, come to complete stall. And even with Melvin Gordon looking better, even with like complementary pieces like Travis Benjamin or whatever, without Keenan Allen, I don't think San Diego has an offense to speak of. We're looking at another turgid San Diego offense this year without Keenan Allen. And yeah, I don't think that team is going to do very well without him. Mm. What about yourself, Harry? That's it. Like It's a disaster for San Diego. He's far and away the best receiver on the team. He's probably the most important offensive player. No offense to Philip Rivers, but he is. He saw the difference that was made last season when he went down. He's had quite a substantial injury history. He had a, a knee injury in college. I think it was his MCL rather than his ACL. Had a broken collarbone, lacerated kidney, like you said. And now his ACL. It's, it's, it's awful because he's such a talented player. Mm. And this is... Like he, his career is still relatively young, so if this is the state he's getting himself into already, and yeah, yeah like when I see this, I'm just thinking Denario Alexander, mm. and that's not good. So uh, hopefully he can bounce back from this next year, and hopefully, however he rehabs it or whatever training he's going through, can help him. You know, maybe leave himself less vulnerable. But uh, there's nothing you can do about things like this. It's complete non-contact. There's just no, nothing that happens that causes this. It's it's. Really, really unfortunate for him, and no, of course, yeah. uh, just leaves the team in a, in a really bad spot where they're again relying on the likes of Williams and Inman, and who knows else. Yeah, I think the I think the figure I saw touted around was uh, with Keenan Allen on the field, uh, Rivers was throwing an average of ninety three yards more per game when he's in versus when he's out, which is a huge difference in any scenario. Let alone just you know what a proper number one can do in changing how defensive have to play against you and stuff. So it's a big loss for San Diego, and uh, like even though they're in the division with me, I feel bad for that one. That is that's not great. Cleveland up next, the factory of sadness. RG three didn't last too long before deciding he didn't want to be the Browns' quarterback anymore. Uh, he's apparently uh, dislocated slash sprained his non-throwing shoulder. Uh, he is not needing surgery on it, but he's been put on IR with the potential to return after eight weeks. RG3 looked okay in parts during this game. Uh, not amazing, but he did look better than we probably expected him to look, given he was like the scout team safety the year <laughs> beforehand. Realistically, is this a big drop-off for them production-wise to have someone else other than an RG3 trying to restart his career under centre? I think it caps them in a sense because if RG3 is able to put it together, if he's able to, you know, with under Hugh Jackson's tutelage, able to recapture the form we've seen early in his career, he's a much, much better player than Josh McCown. We know what Josh McCown can do. We know what Josh McCown can do in Cleveland. It's not much. RG3, I think, brought hope and the potential of there being something more. We saw him developing a bit of chemistry with the likes of uh, Terrell Pryor in preseason and with Josh Gordon when he was playing in preseason as mm-hmm. well, and that's all out the window. I think it's a big psychological blow to the team. It obviously sucks for RG3 that he, again, his his, his second chance has now been set back. Uh, but this is just Cleveland. They're, they're cursed. Oh, they are. Um, we're going to fly through a few more of the uh, ones. I'm going to come to you on the next one here, uh, Ronan. Uh, Wilson sprained his ankle. They're not sure whether he's going to be playing in week two or not. Uh, it's a it's an injury that normally lasts kind of maybe up to three weeks. Uh, 
he was able to continue playing in the game. It meant that he lost a lot of the mobility he would have had, and he had to change up his game. They still still looked reasonably good, but it does change the nature of the way they build that offense. Uh, what's your thoughts on this? Do you think he's going to be gone? And if he is, what do you think the impact's going to be? I think he'll play. I think he really wants to play. I think if, if there's any way that he can play, he will force himself to play. He will force the coaching staff to make him play. So it's going to be a tough decision from the coaching staff, from Pete Carroll, to pull him out. I think like the NFL, they say you'll have to tie him down to his chair if you want him not to play. Um, in terms of the injury, like he looked worse. It, it got better as the game went on. He came back on the series after the ankle sprain, taped up, could barely move, could barely hand off the ball, uh, never mind throw it. But by the end, he was able to do a bit of dink and duck kind of stuff. Mm. I think it does take away that like unpredictable element from the offense. But I think Wilson proved last year that he can be a pocket passer. He proved in that last drive to win the game that he can he can do that type of thing. While I probably wouldn't do it against LA, considering the defensive line that they have. Russell Wilson's a competitor. He'll probably go out there. And the big the biggest thing is I hope that he doesn't get injured more in in what looks like a dangerous game against. You know, a team which isn't exactly known for its clean play. Um, <laughs> and, of course, this is all compounded by the fact that the first-round draft pick, Jermaine Fetty, was injured just before the first game happened and probably out for at least one or two weeks more, increasing yeah. that pressure on the interior line where Jamarcus Webb hardly counts as an elite guard at this stage. No, of course, of course. Guard at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a few other ones that will just kind of fly through nice and quick. Houston, Cushing is out for six weeks. Uh, this is probably going to cause some issues for them in their run defense. They've still got two excellent uh, edge rushers. So they've still got the pressure, but I'm not sure if they're going to be able to solidify the center as much as they would have thought. Three excellent edge rushers. You're forgetting Whitney Merciless. Mm. Yeah, like Cushing is important, but like I think the main impact here is that the team is now 50% less bro than it was last week. That's true. <laughs> he was... God, do you remember, do you remember watching him on, uh, on Hard Knocks and just being like, oh, it's Biff from fucking Back <laughs> yeah. to the Future. So yeah, obviously, it's a bit of a loss for them, but like he's, he's no longer as important a piece on that defense and what that defensive scheme means, I think. Uh, Jacksonville, there's a mystery surrounding uh, Chris Ivory. We've been informed that he was hospitalized, some kind of medical scenario. I haven't had any more details about this since. Uh, anyone got anything from your from your insider sources? You sound like Ian Rappaport. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if we could get a scoop like over Ian Rappaport one day? Well, I, th- I think, you know, maybe, maybe I think since the whole JPP X-ray thing, maybe people have been a little uh, leery about leaking players' medical records. Yeah, that's true. Uh, like, we don't know, but to be honest, it's none of our business. The man is sick. It's got nothing to do with football. Uh, I think we can just say we hope he's all right and comes back. And if he decides to tell us what it is, that's up to him. Uh, I, I'm quite glad the media aren't trying to find out what, what's going on here. Fair enough. And then the last one uh, fits Bud Dupree for Pittsburgh. Uh, he's been injured. Expected back in the second half. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, former first-round pick, but has never really lived up that potential. But he was part of what was looking like a fairly exciting linebacker group there. I think like Shazier and players like that were showing themselves to be better than him. But it's a bit of a loss for Pittsburgh. I think they'll survive. And they'll get it back in the second half. You know, I think setback for the Pittsburgh defense, what we saw in the game uh, last night or on Monday, that they can be still a pretty effective defense regardless. Yeah, so like that's kind of that's most of the major ones. There's a few small ones here and there, and a couple of ones that are kind of leave people questionable, but they're not kind of definitely out next week. So it should be easier to tell this year. They've only got two designations now, don't they? Uh, 
They got yeah. rid of Probable, yeah. is it? I, I can't wait for Bill Belichick to list the entire 53-man roster as questionable in week three. <laughs> in terms of, there was also some signings, contracts, and a few trade bits. Uh, most of this is kind of stuff you'll have heard already. Breeze has been extended. He's getting paid, but they can get rid of him after two years. Uh, so... You know, it's 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 probably a good scenario to be in. Sitting signed by Chicago, Denver extended Sanders. Uh, is there any of the other ones you guys particularly want to talk about? Uh, Forset situation where he was re-signed, like he was cut by Baltimore, and then he cleared waivers. Yeah, there was kind of a, a weird kind of shenanigans thing where apparently they wanted to put uh, Matt Elam and another defender, Davis, on IOR but that they would have had a situation where they couldn't designate him as IOR as uh, ready to return during the season without cutting Forsett. Because Forsett was effectively re-signed on the same contract that he had previously with a little sweetener of, like, a, I think, 100,000 bonus if he gets more yards this year. So oh, okay. it's a bit strange there. Maybe there's some questions there about how IOR works or, or how that goes. But overall, I, yeah, that was probably just the most interesting uh, kind of tidbit type mm. of uh, contract trade type of situation in the last few weeks. Yeah, and actually the only other one that kind of intrigued me quite a bit, Harry, you might be able to shed some Nobody wants our linemen. Yeah, you might be able to shed some light on this. So, conditional fourth in a lineman, and then the people had already lined up a trade for that lineman, but then he failed a physical or something? Okay, so I think think you're conflating Brian Stork and Josh Klein there. So what happened with Stork was that that was... Sorry, that was the thing, but yes. Supposedly it was Stork in Washington. Klein was to Philadelphia? Yeah, for Eric Rowe, who Mm -hmm. is... Interesting project player uh, that Philly seemed to have given up on very quickly. Um, so we'll see what happens there. The client thing is weird because we were going to trade him. Then we went, no, we're actually not going to give him to you. And then just caught him anyway. So I have no idea what happened there. I presume it's that if they cut rather than trade, they might be able to get a compensatory pick? It, it could be, but I, I, I just bizarre for Philly being told, oh, you're getting this. Actually, no, you're not getting this. Yeah. And Philly being <laughs> well, like, nah. I think with a trade, it wouldn't affect the conditional pick situation no it, it, it would because it's based on your loss of players not through you trading because in a transaction they are getting something back for him uh, yeah I, I thought it was only for free agency I could be wrong on that I'm, I'm not 100% sure on how the yeah. conditional picks work uh, no yeah ugh. because uh, it could be uh, it, it, it's a, well it's all kept va- relatively vague so you don't really know and you can kind of yeah, guess how they go going to the deep technical aspects of the NFL but yeah I don't know but yeah, that, was, that was just a really bizarre fucking trade story at the end yeah, um, I don't know why that happened and then outside of that Bruce Miller got cut because he beat up an old guy and Finnegan and Forbath are gone from New Orleans alright that's the end of the news so we're going to have a look at six games uh, this week. We've got three that go into the Ring of Honor, two that go into the Neutral Zone, and two that go into the Dumpster Fire. There was actually a lot of good games this week, uh, so we had a bit of trouble trying to pick between them. Even the ones in the Neutral Zone had some very good parts to them as well, but they paled in comparison. So uh, we're going to try and fly through a few of these. The first one up, Carolina-Denver, 20-21. Very exciting opener for the Thursday night of this uh, of this week one. Uh it was, to use a, a hackneyed sports metaphor, a game of two halves in which Carolina looked in great form by comparison to their Super Bowl performance in the first half. Uh, we saw Cam Newton not dropping back as much, so then you weren't getting the pressure that they were getting from Von Miller and so on. But then the second half, the Denver defense came out and decided to start, and we've already discussed, hitting a little bit too hard for some of our liking, um, but really controlling Cam Newton and not allowing them to have the the kind of time they had beforehand and the freedom to, to, to get the ball out. Simeon looked okay in his first start, didn't look great, but to be honest, it seems more like a system that's built around him being a mediocre quarterback who hands off the ball and can just 
work the system and uh, the only other major note I wanted before I kicked it to you guys was just that uh, Benjamin looked incredibly good in his first game back here uh, looked to be kind of coming straight back in where he left off uh, so I suppose you stayed up and watched this live Harry so I'll go to you first on this what were your thoughts on this game yeah it was it was a, like you said a very uneven game for both teams uh, I think a lot of this was you know Thursday night football being what it is and first game of the season a lot of kinks to be ironed out um just a strange game in a lot of ways. Simeon looked smart, as in played within his limitations, which I think is what you want to do when you're in his position. Mm-hmm. Took what the defence gave him. Lots of little plays into the flats and things like that. I think this is going to be CJ Anderson's offence this year. He looked incredible, even running against the pairing of of uh, Davis and Keekley. He did really well with the ball in his hand, again, receiving out in the flats on dump-offs and short routes. Uh, what I thought was really interesting from Denver is this is now Kubiak's offense. This is no longer Peyton Manning's offense. Yeah. This is Kubiak's offense. This is now an old-school power football fullback offense, and it works. Like In some ways, the team was built to do this, and Peyton Manning doing his Peyton Manning thing was fine and all, but that's not what this team was built to do, and the team is now doing what it was built to do on offense, and it's working. They're creating space. They're being able to chip the best linebacker pairing in the league, probably. And that's quite worrying for other teams now, because you're like, well, okay, Trevor Simeon, whatever, yeah, we can probably shut that down. But now they've got a whole new issue with a completely different-looking run game coming out of of Denver, and one that looks very, very good. Uh, I agree with you, Benjamin was impressive in some ways. He did pick up where he left off, as in he also like missed half of his targets. <laughs> uh, but when he gets the ball in his hands, yeah, he's, he's obviously a huge guy, big catch radius, very physical, very talented receiver. You know, just for... So, yeah, Denver's offense looked good. Carolina sort of, yeah, lost their way in the second half. Um, the you know the the young backfield didn't look as bad as it could have been. Thought Trey Boston and Ben Wickery had decent games, mm-hmm. but uh, they definitely even with the pressure up front, they do still miss having a guy like Josh Norman. But I think they're going to work that out, and I think the younger players will see them grow into the roles uh, as the season rolls on, and they certainly look better than some of the other young backfields we saw this week. So all in all, fun game. Yeah, two teams, strong defenses, offenses trying to find their feet a little bit, and as it was for Denver, their offense probably found its feet a little bit better. But also, you know, obviously Carolina very unlucky to lose the game on that uh, no, missed field goal attempt. So really one of those ones that quite genuinely could have swung either way. And as it just happens, uh, Carolina a little unlucky in the end. But that's that's how it goes sometimes. No, of course. What about yourself, Ronan? Any thoughts? Well, I think we shouldn't be too surprised by this move to a more run-based offense. Like Kubiak has always been a major proponent of the zone-based scheme for running. That was, the, he, that was basically the bedrock of those solid Houston teams where he ran the Brock with Arian Foster and made Matt Schaub look like a starting quarterback for a while. <laughs> what a time to be alive. So I think the fact that we're seeing C.J. Anderson start to explode within that system should be really good, like should be really exciting for this year. And I think that basically turns Simeon basically into that game manager role where he should be good. And like we've seen that teams can succeed with that formula and having a player who's willing to work within those conditions is better and definitely suits Kubiak more as a coach. And Kubiak has always been a decent coach. He just happened to have that one final year in Houston when everything seemed to go wrong for him. I think one thing to worry about the Denver uh, situation is the defense. Like This is supposed to be the best defense in football, but in that first half it looked relatively ordinary. And like when we look at Von Miller, like Von Miller makes incredible splash plays. He's always quite good. But there's no denying that over, like his production probably doesn't quite match up to his reputation. Like if you actually look at the number of sacks that he got last season, it wasn't actually an amazing sack total. And I know he gets like double and triple team, but I kind of think that you know this is a good defense, but I don't think it's the all-time worldly defense that people think of. So you're saying you're saying it's not a Seahawks defense? Well, like it probably it's probably maybe equal to the Seahawks defense like this season or last season, but perhaps not that 2013 winning season uh, defense. 
Like, I think this is a really, really good defense, but it has been overblown a little bit. And we may see that, though, like, missing those pieces like Malik Jackson may lead to this being, like, a little bit of return to earth for this defense. Uh, I, I desperately wish the listener could see the look on Harry's face whenever you were like, maybe this season's one, but not our best ones. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, I can show you the statistics, but whatever. Um, so, like, I think Nerd. if this if this like running game gets going, I think that will basically balance the team more than it was last year, and that will kind of even out. But I do think that this defense probably won't be as good as it was last year, and even last year might not have been as good as people thought it was. Just just a note on the defense, because I just want to come back to that. I agree that it's not as good as last year's uh, with losing pieces on the interior like Malik Jackson. But if you look at, at that game, the even though Carolina did, again, limit Newton's drop back, so basically try and stop where and middle of the thing where they literally run around the tackles, that limited how Carolina were able to play offense for a lot of the game. It limited the amount of time and space Newton was actually able to get to escape in particular. And Miller was being held quite a lot that didn't get called that night. While you can, you can say that it's true that statistically it might not look fantastic, but what it actually did was that in order to neutralize that, Carolina did have to neutralize part of their own passing game and part of Cam Newton's running game as well, which I think does speak to that Denver still has an awful lot of quality up front. And Chris Harris, again, was fantastic last night, as I should mention. Yeah, but this is, like, this is degrees. Like We're talking about the difference between like best of all time or like world-class defense and like a top three top five defense that's what i'm kind of talking about here mm. and they're still cheating bastards so fuck them uh, <laughs> the next game we're going to talk about is an afc west showdown chargers at the chiefs 27 to 33 in overtime as is a very exciting game that i was getting fucking annoyed of watching updates to for a while and just going my poor heart my poor heart jesus will this ever end chargers destroyed the first half going into early in the third quarter they were up 24 to 3 in this game they obviously had the injury to, to Keenan Allen, which I think probably limited their offense a bit in the second half. But mostly I think it was a change of structure at the halftime and also a change in defensive mindset from San Diego. I think they probably were playing a little bit softer than they should have been. And that just allowed the, the Chiefs back into the game. Uh, Alex Smith had an incredible stat line that does not sound like an Alex Smith, uh, Smith stat line. 34 of 48 for 368 yards, two touchdowns, one rushing touchdown and one interception. That's brilliant. Spencer Ware, 199 yards, uh, all-purpose yards. Uh, and he got 46. He was only on the field for 46% of the snaps offensively and had nearly 200 yards. Big concern for me looking at this was that defense is meant to be a strength of the Chiefs team. It did nothing in the first half. It got itself a bit more together in the second half, but even then it wasn't firing on all cylinders. San Diego, they have a tendency to throw these games away sometimes, but this was a big collapse from them. What are your major concerns? Because I I think while a good game, there's concerns for both teams coming out of this. Harry? Yeah, well, I think... It showed us something I think we were saying all off-season about San Diego is when all their players are healthy, they are a really, really, really good team. <laughs> and then when their best player gets hurt, they just completely they, they just lost their way. Uh, it, was, it was a very strange game in some ways, but like Melvin Gordon looked way, way better than last season. Rivers was getting his receivers. Keenan Allen was doing his thing. It looked very good. The defense was causing all kinds of problems for the way Kansas City were playing. They were ready for what the Chiefs were going to offer them and were... Um, making it very, very difficult for Alex Smith to pass, in particular in the first half, although although uh, Ware was still looking good on the ground. Then it just, yeah, like I said, it just, it just fell to pieces. I'm now concerned immediately for San Diego that that's the end of that, as we mentioned earlier. Without Keenan Allen, they're going to really, really struggle. 
uh, and also obviously the questions about the coaching with how they went into the defense in the second half. Yeah. That's how they react to ha- trying to protect the lead. Like this is a team that has a reputation for blowing huge second half leads, and it's done one it again. Mm. Um, Kansas City, yeah, looked fantastic after they made the adjustments. Came out, did what they needed to do. But you've got to be concerned. How do you get into that big of a hole at home oh, against a division rival who are you know playing well? But you you know what they offer by now. You've got to be able to say right, Keaton Allen is the weapon. They're going to do this, this, this. They're probably going to try and run Gordon. He had a good pre mm-hmm. a p- good preseason. And you've got guys like, like Marcus Peters just looking lost all game long. That's really, really concerning. And you've got to ask, is there a problem with how the coaching is approaching this season? Or were they, was it just a case of underestimating San Diego and being like, oh, we know what they're going to offer, they're going to offer and then being surprised by them? But look, at the end of the day, you've got to respect being able to pull it out. And that shows that there is something there. So really, the, both, both teams, it's like, we saw the best and the worst. Which one is going to be representative the rest of the season? And for San Diego, I think I'm more worried that it's going to be the bad thing. Whereas for Kansas City, I think this is one of those early season wobbles that we saw from the second half. They're like, okay, no, we're not just not going to do this anymore. We're going to actually have to go and play football. No, of course. So did yourself, Ronan? Yeah, no, I agree with a lot of Harry said there. I think there is definitely worries in that KC defense, particularly in the secondary. The secondary looked very rusty. Obviously, Eric Berry had his relative holdout during the offseason. I think that might have had an effect on his play. I think he, one of the touchdowns could more or less be blamed on him. Um, and then, obviously, they're playing like some inexperienced players back there, obviously, with losing Sean Smith, etc. Yeah. The biggest thing, obviously, is that the lack of... Justin Houston is definitely showing up in the lack of pressure. That is obviously something which could make up for like a under like underperforming secondary. Like It's still incredibly uncertain when he's back, like when he's expected back, if he's expected back at all of this season. So there's definitely things to worry about there. The one thing I did like about KC, though, is that even in the second half, they didn't move away from the run game completely. They still were willing to run the rock, get in those yards. It's kind of thing which like a lot of lesser teams will panic and just start throwing throwing like fifty times, whatever like that. Mm. And we did see a lot of action from Alex Smith. And you know, this is one of those games, kind of like that uh, game against New Orleans when he was with San Francisco, that shows that he can be an exciting quarterback. He's just not asked to be, and he plays better when that when he's not asked to be. But you know, Casey, Andy Reid, they're willing to keep running the ball, keep chewing the clock, and keep. Keep like a balanced playbook, even when they're going, even when they're down by nearly twenty points. And I think that's always very good to see, and always very good to see in your coach. It, it's hard not to think that this San Diego team could easily devolve into another lost season, another lost season for Philip Rivers, basically. And it's it's hard to have a lot of hope right now for them. But you know, San Diego, Philip Rivers, these are tough. It's a tough team with talented pieces. Maybe they could surprise us. But based on what happened in the second half here. I don't have a lot of hope for them. No, of course. Like I think the major change was that they moved to a no huddle and not allowing the defense to get set for San Diego in the second half. My problem is I have absolutely zero faith moving forward that Andy Reid is going to move to more of a quick move uh, offense rather than him calling the plays until he absolutely has to move into that again. And I think I'm worried that we might see a couple more slow starts before that starts to get worked out. Uh, the next game also, Jesus, I've just realized all all three, all four teams from the AFC West are represented in our yeah. in our good teams this year, which I suppose kind of ties into what we were saying beforehand. It's probably going to be a bit of a bloodbath in the division. Uh, Oakland at New Orleans, this was a brilliant game. 36 to 35 made zero fucking sense. Two teams who seemingly cannot defend to save their fucking lives. New Orleans had over 500 yards of offense and zero sacks. Oakland had 486 yards of offense and one sack. Uh, It came down to the very, very tail end of the game where Oakland uh, 
came back, scored a touchdown, could go for one to tie the game, and then go into overtime. It looked like their quarterback was mildly injured, so they decided, fuck it, we're going for two. Now, they did decide to go for two. It was successful, but they went for it in a scenario where they then gave Drew Brees nearly a minute to be able to come back down the field to get within field goal range, and it was still held... like it. It went to the very last second on an attempted 61-yard, was it, uh, field goal attempt. Uh, This was hilarious to watch. I'm going to go to Ronan first on this one. Like, What did you make of this game? Well, there wasn't a lot for the uh, defensive enthusiasts. Uh, (laughs) No. uh, And I'm sure Connor, a little bit of uh, schadenfreunde with uh, Smith getting pulled off the pitch. Oh, yeah, Uh, yeah. He got benched in the fourth quarter. Yeah. So, yeah, like a lot of things to worry about for both teams, but many things to be happy for. Both the Oakland and New Orleans offenses, we were expecting coming into this season that Oakland would have a major step up, that we would start seeing Derek Carr continue to develop, and that a healthy Amari Cooper would start blowing up again after his injury travails in the latter half of last season. That seems to have come true, and Latavius Murray didn't look too bad in his like lead-back role. Like It wasn't great, but he was okay. New Orleans look like New Orleans. I think getting rid of some of the older lads like Colston and bringing in a, like a lot of fresh blood over the last couple of years uh, in Sneed and Thomas has really shown that like when, Bru- when Drew Brees has a lot of people to throw it to, he is still one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, if not the best quarterback in the NFL. I think we saw an incredibly like, exciting offense here, but two defenses that have a lot, a lot of question marks. Now, New Orleans, not entirely unexpected. You know, been a while since they had a good defense. But Oakland, you have to be incredibly worried because obviously he picked up a fair few pieces like Sean Smith, like Bruce Irvin, that were supposed to shore up and bring that defense to the next level after having a somewhat good last, good season last year. But you have to question, did losing Charles Woodson in that defense break apart its identity and bringing in these free agencies, break apart that identity and leave us with a defense which is likely to lead to more of these type of games rather than Oakland being able to have the solid games which will help them basically clear house or have a good chance of taking on these more effective teams like Denver and KC in the AFC West. Yeah, uh, shades of New Orleans versus New York Giants last season right yeah. there, weren't there? Um, yeah, no, I think I think Ronan's pretty much summed it up. Um, the one thing to note, obviously, for New Orleans is uh, uh, Delvin Bro broke his leg during the game, uh, which certainly didn't help what was already a pretty wobbly defensive backfield, to be honest with you. But it was, it, look, it was ridiculous. It was throw it to the guy, yeah, he's gone to touchdown. Was it the 98-yard run? That was a... Oh, no, there was a catch by Cooks, wasn't it? That was a catch by Cooks. It was... That was uh, where Smith got completely burned, I think. And then got Um, pulled off the Yeah, understandably. Although, then again, the coaching leading him in one-on-one against a guy who was like 10 times faster than him was always a bit questionable on on a go route. But whatever. Yeah, terrible defense. Fantastic offense. And great stuff for Jack Del Rio. Yeah, go for two at the end of the game. You know what? Why not? Now, if it hadn't worked out, God knows we wouldn't be saying that. Did you, but did, did you, see, did, his, did so you see his tweets? I did. Oh, they were brilliant. I did. They were excellent. And <laughs> uh, picking a fight with the ESPN predictor bot. Like. Yeah, the predictor bot was like, oh no, statistically you should have gone for this. It's like, well, statistics don't mean shit. Like. <laughs> That's why I coach and you don't. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was, it, was a, it was a really fun game. And I don't think either team will want to be in as many fun games as this again. But it was definitely good, and I think it was good from Oakland just for the fact that we saw the coaching is willing to be really aggressive this season. They they know this is the start of a window, and they're going to go for it. They went toe-to-toe with Drew Brees for a whole game in a shootout and came away victorious on a really, really ballsy call. Oh, yeah. And that is, I think, the big positive to take away from them because 
God knows it isn't on the other side of the ball. Mm. And the one thing actually that I do, just as an aside, really like about this is I always love watching a good New Orleans offense because it reminds me of the golden days of Drew Brees. And I, this was just really entertaining to watch as long as I could turn off the part of my brain that liked defense. <laughs> So we're now going to move from the from the Ring of Honor into kind of the neutral zone. These are games that are actually quite enjoyable, but like an, on another week might have actually done well. But uh, yeah, so the first one we're going to look at is New England and Arizona. Um, to be honest, I don't have a huge amount to say about this game. Like, I thought it was a good showing from New England, a poor showing that I expected from Arizona. Uh, it obviously bodes well for New England's season that they were able to get this win and it means they're definitely coming out with two if not more wins out of this four game patch slow start from the Cardinals is potentially concerning so like, what's your thoughts on this Harry given that it's your team that's playing them yeah I was actually really impressed with how we looked um, Arizona yeah weren't their best but they weren't by any means awful like this game was tight it, it shouldn't have been we committed a few really sloppy fumbles and turnovers and uh, it's good in a way, not only because we won, but also because you know if you can cut those out, it's, it's a comfortable win then against a good team rather than a very very close one again on a basically botched snap on a field goal at the end yeah. of the game. Um, Jimmy Garoppolo looked way more comfortable than he has at any point during preseason, possibly actually with the benefit of just playing with a real playbook that he's familiar with. So he may have uh, just underestimated uh, the preparedness there. The O line, which had been shambolic as well, despite having missing pieces all over the place, one starter on that O line really looked decent the defense as we know looked good uh, as expected we got different players involved Chris Hogan looked like he's stopping in quite nicely Edelman had a good game the run game was it was the Patriots run game it did enough Martellus Bennett looked really good in run blocking actually which really mm. surprised me it shows that you know once again the quality of the coaching staff we've been able to scheme away despite being able missing key pieces both on offense and in, on defense and like some Ninkovich etc being gone but I think it showed that New England can come out of this Jimmy Garoppolo period stronger than we expected that Garoppolo will if he can keep playing like that under pressure will do a good job and you know this could be rather than being one or two wins this could be three or maybe even four out of the Brady suspension which would be uh, unbelievable and also a great benefit that all the other teams in the East managed to lose this week yeah so yeah (laughs) things are looking good slight concerns for Arizona certainly other than Larry Fitzgerald the receiving core did not look good Struggled to get open. Uh, I think some credits due to Logan Ryan and Malcolm Butler on that. David Johnson looked. But um, yeah, questions, I think, of the, the O-line didn't look great. The pass rush wasn't where we thought it was going to be. But I think there's a lot of sort of players coming back there. And I think they missed Freeney a bit. So I think this will gel as things go on. So I wouldn't be hitting any panic buttons on Arizona quite yet. Because this is still, you know, they're still going up against a Bill Belichick team. That's always going to be a tough play. With what we think is a very strong Pats defense as well. Yeah, exactly. So not not ready to, you know, ring any alarm bells there yet. Um, I think that's just a case of them settling. I think Arians is definitely a good enough coach to be able to make the adjustments week on week. Yeah, no, I agree mostly with what Harry says. I think, like, the Arizona defense, we knew there were a few missing pieces, particularly in that secondary. Like, they have amazing pieces there, but the secondary pieces, like their second cornerback, etc., isn't quite as good and they definitely looked quite vulnerable to the kind of dink and duck kind of offense that New England specializes in. It's definitely a worry for them, especially when we're talking about a team that wants to win a Super Bowl in what is a relatively short window, obviously with Carson Palmer getting up there in years. So, you know, overall a disappointing game for the Cardinals. You know, they were within a kick of winning it. Uh, But yeah, things to worry about there and things to worry about for teams who are looking to win a Super Bowl, not just make the playoffs. 
No, of course, of course. Uh, the other one that we have in the neutral zone here is uh, Green Bay at Jacksonville, which actually I thought was a phenomenal game. I thought it was very enjoyable. Uh, Rodgers didn't get great numbers on this game, 199 yards, 20-34 with two touchdowns. The numbers belie how good he looked in this game. They couldn't touch him in the pocket. He was throwing pristine passes into tiny windows. Like Myself and Harry had one or two moments where he just stopped and looked at each other and went, holy shit, Like that's, that's what separates him. Jacksonville looked excellent as well. The defense couldn't get to Rodgers, but that's kind of his thing. So, like, that's understandable. Allen Robinson threw up some questionable numbers here. In He had six catches for 72 yards, which is good. But he also missed nine other catches, which is not what you're looking for. And obviously there are issues with some of them being too hard, overthrown or anything. But you'd want to see more out of him. TJ Yeldon was completely shut down. 21 rushes for 39 yards. like, And it was played in 115-degree heat, which... Uh, Cut to a lot of very, very burnt cheeseheads in the stands, which was brilliant. Um, but like overall, I find this game very exciting, and I did think it was a strong showing from both teams. What about yourself? I think the biggest worry for Green Bay is that Aaron Rodgers looked phenomenal, but he has the same problems he had last year, even with Jordy Nelson back. Though Jordy Nelson did look quite good, which is that Aaron Rodgers needed to do magic to make that offense work. Like That Green Bay offense, we know that when it's efficient and when it's balanced, can be a normal offense, an efficient offense, and Aaron Rodgers looks amazing then. But the problem right now is they're relying so much on Aaron Rodgers' improvisational skills that you have to worry that you can't keep that out for an entire season. It didn't keep up for a lot of last season. And even though Eddie Lacy looks better this season, he still looks a little bit slower than he was in his initial couple of years in the, in the league where he looked like a far more explosive player. For the Jags, yeah, I think the, there's a bit of an issue on offense there with Allen Robinson not really pulling through there. The Jags' offense looks better. It looks like it's still where it was, but you still have to worry this isn't an offense which knows how to do it in prime time when it really matters. When it really mattered on the last drive, it didn't look like they knew what they were doing, and they were shut down by a Green Bay secondary, which was playing well and which has a lot of good pieces, but which wouldn't be considered among the elite secondaries of the league. You still have to have that feeling about the Jacksonville Jaguars that when the chips are down, they're not a team that's able to win these tight games that they need to be doing if they want to be a real challenger in the AFC. Yeah, I'd be a little more forgiving of the Jaguars because you know, Green Bay are a really good team. Uh, and I think it was a very strong showing for them in a lot of facets of it. And they didn't make things easy for Rodgers by any stretch of the imagination. I think when they're up against less brilliant improvisational quarterbacks, they will have success and they will be able to get home. I mean, like Connor said, some of the throws Rodgers made, like the touchdown to Nelson and the touchdown to Adams, were the window he was able to get those balls into. Especially was, he, was, he was being pulled backwards down. <laughs> by Ramsey on one of them, absolutely. Like, it was crazy. And I think, you know, when you're playing a team that doesn't have a, a, a super elite quarterback you know it's going to come down in your favor on those those passes are going to be bad or the quarterback will go down or they might even get picked so i think they're definitely positives from jacksonville it's difficult to assess teams playing in nearly 120 degree heat uh, is the other thing uh, particularly so i wouldn't be taking too much out of this game in terms of like oh this guy struggled that guy struggled like there are certainly overall organizational problems like ronan alluded to and i agree very much with that but I'd say, look, this is just a game that was played in, I think, exceptionally difficult conditions. I wouldn't be too quick to, to judge any of that. Mm. Um, the one thing that I do think Ron is absolutely dead right on is, in terms of Rodgers having to improvise, I think moving away, moving away from Josh Sitton might turn out to be a really bad move for this team because the pressure was coming and Rodgers was able to avoid it. But sometimes he isn't always going to be able to do that. Sometimes he is going to get hit and you're worried that if he's having to do that, one of those times they get home and they'll hurt him. 
Oh yeah, like that's that's the thing, especially with the value that you have at that position. Like, because it's one thing to lose some of your receiving options and still have Aaron Rodgers. It's another thing to have those receiving options and have whoever the fuck they're going to have then at that point. Uh, so now we're into the the sweet sweet dumpster fires of the worst games of the week. Uh, we're going to have a quick look at two of these games: Minnesota, Tennessee. Minnesota couldn't get anything done in this game. They were fucking awful. Peterson's worst day ever potentially: nineteen carries for thirty-one yards, like one point six yards average. Average, and that's with a long of nine. <laughs> like that is terrifying numbers. Stefan Diggs looked good, over a hundred yards. Um, your boy Taja Sharp, you know, clearly the number one receiver there in 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 Tennessee. He had seven catches on eleven targets. That's like more than double the targets that anyone else got. Like it took two defensive touchdowns and a load of shitty kicking for this to go the way it did. Like this was terrible. Is this the death of exotic smash mouth? <laughs> Well, they certainly, uh, they certainly fed uh, fed the running backs. Um, yeah. Oh my goodness, Tennessee! Like this was there for the taking uh, in so many ways, and they just—I I don't even know—just completely disorganized, made a meal of it. There were bad plays. There were bad drops by uh, by Andre Johnson, in particular, was, was guilty of that. Mariota wasn't precise with his throws. The run game—they they ran it a lot, but they didn't really get a lot out of it. Like obviously, Murray finished two touchdowns, but they they struggled to get decent runs going. Minnesota's offense was virtually non-existent. Their defense was incredible and stepped up as it needed to. Uh, Kendricks uh, made some fantastic plays, including obviously his his uh, touchdown. But uh, just generally was everywhere on the field. But, uh, Tennessee couldn't get going, and the problem is they had no like nothing worked from the run game. Didn't work. Passing game didn't work. The secondary, as we knew, was was not great. So even with Sean Hill struggling, Diggs was still able to hit some nice moves, beat the first man a couple mm. of times. And there was all like, that weird kind of like stuff that looked like it was meant to be kind of like wing option plays that just yeah. made no sense at all. There were a lot of plays like that that just like there were a couple of so yeah, those weird option plays and wide sweeps and stuff where it was like neither Mariota nor Murray seemed to think they should be the one with the football. <laughs> like it, I think this team have flattered to deceive. Uh, like. Today Sharp looked good, Laney Walker looked okay, but and, and like on the defense looked I, I mean credit Adjun Fred Tennessee's front seven, as we knew, looked decent, shut down Peterson all day long, but just no organization, no idea of what they actually wanted to do when they had the ball. Like for me, two things. Like I think we saw what happened. Like this is kind of an illustration of what you would expect to happen if you put a college type offense against an NFL defense or an elite NFL defense, which Minnesota is complete and utter annihilation. The second thing is I think we're going to see Sam Bradford next week. Sean Hill does not look good. He looks busted as a player. And even though like Stephon Diggs made some yards, uh, this, like this offense is just so predictable. They stacked the box against Peterson and they shut him down completely. You have to bring in Sam Bradford, whatever his faults, because you know Sam Bradford's an average quarterback. Sean Hill should be out of the league. I, w- I was amazed they didn't bring him in at halftime, to be honest. Like, or at least bring him in towards the back end to give him a couple of reps under centre and make them try and at least accept that there might be a pass coming. I think they just don't want the risk of him getting hurt before he's ready, basically. Because yeah. if he goes, if, if you're bringing him on then and he gets hurt, and then it's like, well, that is Sean Hill, Sean Hill for the rest of the mm. season. So you at least give him more time to get comfortable and be in a position where he's less likely to get hurt because he doesn't know the playbook as well. So essentially, Minnesota, you look like garbage, change your shit. Tennessee, just change everything, please. Very good. Apart from Tajay Sharp. Harry still loves Tazer Sharp. The last game we're going to look at is almost certainly the worst game of the week. Uh, the one that Harry stayed up all night to watch and definitely feels okay about that. Uh, Los Angeles at San Francisco. Zip to 28 as a woeful game. Gabbert versus Keenan. A sum total of 290 passing yards between the teams. 
Uh, Todd Gurley was stopped entirely. Like, 290 passing yards is, like, an okay day for, like, a mid-tier quarterback on their own. Like, this is horrifying. Gurley stopped completely, 17 carries for 47 yards. Um, There was 39 touches in total in this game. The game averaged 4.1 yards per attempt. Like, I'm sure there's going to be 49ers fans out there who look at this and say, you see, everyone was just counting us out, but we're really still in this. You're like, no, the LA Rams just suck fucking balls. Like, neither of these teams should be playing in the NFL this season. (laughs) We should relegate them. Relegate them to the Pac-12, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who's that coming on their fixie bike and their custom moustache? It's the punt enthusiast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, actually, yes. That's that's one thing I want to add to this before uh, before I finish up. We have uh, a list of the uh, of the <laughs> of the outcomes of every single uh, of every single drive of the Rams here. This is the Rams drive chart: punt, 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 interception, punt, 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 interception, punt, turnover on downs. Well, Johnny Hecker had ten punts for an average of forty-two. <laughs> Yard with four inside the twenty and a longest of fifty four. I think that constitutes a very good punting game. I think that's a very good positive for the Los Angeles Rams and their new home and their new hope. Uh, so yeah, overall, I think great, great game for the punts. Uh, what about, what about yourself, Harry? Do you have anything? To... There, was, there was a stage in the game uh, before San Fran's third touchdown where uh, there had been fourteen points scored and fifteen punts. Uh, so there was some, definitely some punting. I was actually messaging Alex, who was in the stadium at the time. Uh, Alex, a uh, friend of the podcast, mm. he lives out. Uh, out in the Bay Area, and uh, to be fair, uh, he said that the general reaction was disbelief that the team was actually winning a game. But yeah. this was this was Chip Kelly's wild ride in full flow. Like San Fran won the game, and nothing they did made any sense. Like what Blaine Gabbert would do is Blaine Gabbert would go through it. He would go through all of his reads, decide he didn't like any of them, then run for five yards and get hit. They ran the no huddle while trying to run down the clock because apparently they hadn't drilled doing a huddle. So they were running a no huddle, then just sort of meandering around at the line for 40 seconds, waiting for... And then just snap. Like, like just snap the ball. Like, uh, it was bizarre. Look, like, Carlos Hyde, as we said at the start of the year, looks like he's a good fit in that offense with the, the one cut and the vision that he's got. Jeremy Curley looked okay. Everything else was on fire on offense. It made, like, not the good kind of on fire, as in the bad kind of on fire, mm. like a flaming bag of poo left on your, mm. your doorstep. Oh, please, please let it stop. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. Um, there, there were some positives on the defense as well, in fairness to San Fran. Like, um, Navarro Bowman had an insane game, like, lockdown girly, pretty much all the first half and most of the second. But, like, just generally just disorganized. It was a, a triumph of, of, of chaos, really. And against the, when they come up against a real team who can play real football, that is just not going to fly and they're going to get butchered. The Rams, I, I don't even know what with this team. Like, this is supposedly the, one of the best defensive fronts in the NFL. It is, and they were, it took them ages to figure out that maybe they should be stacking the box because Blaine Garrett isn't much of a passing threat. Like, it took them three quarters to work that out and then the fourth quarter they just gave up because they were knackered and Aaron Donald tried to punch uh, sorry tried to push an official and got ejected and like total lack of discipline again classic Jeff Fisher team this is just a result of two coaches who are just really weird at coaching now like I gave up on hard knocks after one episode because I just could I just didn't like any of them found them boring as shit right did either of you guys actually watch hard knocks no. this season 
I have one episode left. All I've right. Been watching it, I've watched it like over the long weekend, but I had like a couple of days off. No, no, that's oh, fine. Okay. No, because what I was wondering is, I just I'd love to get, and I actually must go and look it up now. Specifically, I'd love to just get an idea of their mindset going into the season and how they thought this game was going to go. Because I don't think ten punts, uh, two interceptions, and a turnover on downs was their target. Um, like, must be Willie Hayes writing up their offensive book or something. <laughs> Is he the one who doesn't think believe in dinosaurs, dinosaurs, but does believe in mermaids? Yes. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. He was excited about the move to LA like, because mermaids uh, exist. At this rate, that girl who turned up for their practices in the mermaid costume, if they left her at quarterback in the mermaid costume, she would probably be the starter. No. That's how bad their quarterback situation mermaid is right now. Mermaid, you splash. It's super effective. <laughs> You're mixing your references. <laughs> oh, my. Now, we do normally go to questions here. we got a couple in from you guys, but we're rolling a little bit over because there was a lot of very good games this week. So we're going to save those. Uh, there was one about the Cleveland Browns, and there was one about potential trade. So we're going to do them next week. But uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to go straight to our picks for week two. So yeah, so we're going to have a quick look here. We agree on a lot of these. We disagree on some. There's a few that we still got question marks besides. We're not <laughs> sure where we're going with them. Um, so we've got, we'll, we'll just fly through these and just give us a line or two on what what, what, what you think. So I'm going to go uh, Jets at Buffalo. We've taken Jets across the board. So I'm going to go to uh, Harry on this first. Uh, yeah, like I think the Jets look decent in defeat this week. The Bills look completely disorganised in defeat this week obviously massively depleted so you've just got to think that the Jets are going to be able to, to take that one yep no I agree with that uh, our next game New Orleans at uh, Giants I've taken New Orleans Harry's taken New Orleans Fitz you've taken the Giants why do you think the Giants well I think their defence looked quite good against Dallas and I think New Orleans I thought saw last year can be beaten down if you have a good enough defence and the New York Giants offense should have a feast against that New Orleans defense like oh, expect uh, Odell Beckham to get a lot of yards and Sterling Shepard to get a fair few too and maybe even a continued resurgence for Victor Cruz yeah yeah he came through this week actually uh, it was his first game in two years or something yeah and yeah. had a decent game considering no yeah, no of course like I'd say in terms of the New Orleans the reason I'm going for this is I do think I agree with you I think it's going to be high scoring uh, I think that New Orleans are going to be able to best the defence of the New York Giants because I think you have the, a higher opinion on them than I do but I think this is one that's going to be high scoring and I trust Drew Brees like I think I think that this, this week showed a lot of that uh, the next game Tennessee at Detroit uh, we all picked Detroit in this one why do we do that Ronan? Uh, because we saw that Tennessee are a work in progress, and Detroit looked okay in the game against Indianapolis. So Detroit have already beaten one poor team from that division. Why not another? I think the PR company of Tennessee will literally be quoting this podcast going, work in progress, as the most <laughs> positive thing people can say about them. Um, <laughs> this is the thing. Like, this is, this is, you can't pick Tennessee, but with that said, this is the sort of game Detroit lose, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I know it is. Um, so our next one is Dallas at Washington. Uh, I've taken Dallas. Harry's taken Dallas. Fitz taking Washington. Fitz, you're going out on your own a lot in this in, in, in these picks. Um, I suppose get Harry to do uh, Dallas first on this one first. Like yeah, Dallas struggled to finish drives and stuff last week, um, but looked generally okay. I think there's you know there's lots of just getting comfortable uh, doing that. Also, Washington's front seven is not as good as the Giants' front seven, so they should find more room to run than they more time in the pocket than they did last week. Also, like, Washington were just irredeemable trash on Monday night. Terrible uh, offensively. Def- one of the most inept defensive forms, right? You've got Antonio Brown, and you don't get your best corner to follow him. Even after he's burning Bashar Breland every single play, you're like, nah, we'll leave Breland on him because 
this guy plays the left and this guy plays the right. Like, just... Washington just don't look like they have a plan this year, and I think Dallas look like they're just going to be solid. Yeah, what about yourself, Ronan? You took Wash. Well, I think Dallas only have one receiver, so that should solve that problem at least. Um, but no, yeah, like, but no, but the problem like, was you can move that receiver yeah. and they won't follow him. Well, I think they'll follow Des Bryant. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't Antonio Brown. Hopefully, but um, no, like I think like Washington did well last year against bad defenses. I think Dallas's defense still looks like complete trash. I think this is kind of game which could go either way, but I think that Washington against average teams, that's where they made their hay last year, and I think that's where they could do it this year. I don't think they're good enough to challenge against the good teams, but against these mediocre teams like Dallas, I think they'll probably take it in this case. Fair enough. I'm coming back to you again here, Fitz. You are on your own a lot here. Uh, I've taken... It's Casey at Houston. I've taken Casey. Harry's taken Casey. You've taken Houston. So why do you believe in the Brock Lobster? Well, I thought the Brock Lobster offense looked pretty good in, to, in last week's game. I think like Will Fuller looked like a really good player. And with that secondary looking like it is, I think a combination of New Hopkins and Fuller could have a lot of fun there. Um, and, you know, Lamar Miller looked okay. On the defense, we know they have plenty of quality in the defense. We'll see how they handle the KC offense. Like, it's going to be a close game. And this is kind of a coin flip for me. But I'm taking Houston because they're at home. And because I, I think that this offense is going to get better as the year goes on. And I, I think that starts with a, a surprise victory against KC. Hmm. Like I think it'll be an interesting game. Uh, I think they match up well in terms of enjoyable matchups, rather than necessarily anyone having a massive advantage anywhere. Uh, like the Casey lines look better, which will be very interesting against Houston. I think the offense, if it can get to where it was in the second half, will be able to take on this Houston defense. And I believe at that point they have the ability to outscore them. And I do think the Casey defense will look improved. Uh, one thing I will say is I am afraid of the advocate of not waxing Fuller V uh, coming up the sidelines and just <laughs> snatching balls all over the place. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, we'll have to move on. Uh, my, Miami at New England uh, we've all taken New England why New England Harry? Uh, yeah New England looked decent looked solid Miami they, they, they could have beaten the Seahawks and they just couldn't grasp the opportunity in front of them Kenny uh, Stills specifically Kenny, yeah, well, Kenny Stills literally <laughs> in a lot of ways they're just a lot of miscues and miscommunications and they don't look like they're gelling particularly well the defence looks okay uh, Issa abdul Kadus in particular actually looking looking fantastic he's flying around plays like a madman uh, in the earlier game, but it's just difficult to see how when they come up against a organised New England defence and it's in Fox rather than Miami and it's not going to be in the heat, how they're going to actually basically deal with a team that just knows what they're doing when Miami don't really seem to. Fair enough. Baltimore-Cleveland, we've taken Baltimore across the board. Uh, why don't we believe land, Ronan? Well, this is going to be a bad game, firstly, mm. but secondly, Cleveland didn't look good. They're bringing in a new quarterback. Baltimore... Don't look great, but are solid enough to beat what should be a fairly poor Cleveland team. Yeah, like this is this is a garbage game, and we will not be covering it if at all possible. I'm hoping it's just mediocre enough that we don't have to cover it in the bad game <laughs> section. Uh, that that's my dream. Uh, San Francisco, Carolina. We've taken Carolina across the board. Do you know why? Because San Francisco are garbage. Shut your fucking faces, San Francisco fans. One win don't mean shit. Uh, Cincinnati at Pittsburgh. That's I've taken mean. Pittsburgh. Harry's taken Pittsburgh. Fitz taken Cincinnati. Uh, why Pittsburgh, Harry? I'm kind of on the edge about this, and I, I, so I made my call like literally about a minute before we started recording. Um, basically, the reason for this is I think it's going to be a close game. It's going to be a good, you know, one of these traditional Pittsburgh Cincinnati games. The reason I give the edge to Pittsburgh right now is they seem to have found 
even without Martavis Bryant, a, a real lease of life in that passing game. Whereas I think what we saw against the Jets was that Cincinnati's backfield is not quite there yet. And I think that level of play out of the receivers is going to give Pittsburgh a slight edge here, as well as being at home in what I think is going to be a really close and really physical game. And what about yourself, Ronan? You've taken Cincy. Well, firstly, it's a regular season game, not a playoff game. <laughs> secondly... <laughs> <laughs> but it's an important one. <laughs> well, yeah. Secondly, this should be a feisty game. It'll be interesting to see how these two teams uh, feel about each other. Uh, you know, a few, like a fair few months out from that interesting uh, defeat for Cincinnati. But overall, I think Cincinnati are just a more solid team all over. I think like Pittsburgh can feast upon like average defenses like Washington, but I think against a good defense like Cincinnati, I think that should be enough maybe to shade this. But as I, as Harry said, it should be a close game. No, of course. Uh, next one, Tampa Bay at Arizona. This is one I have a question mark over, but I'm just going to stick with it because it's 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 in the predictions already. Uh, I've taken Tampa Bay, and the boys have taken Arizona. Why Arizona, uh, Harry? Uh, yeah, like I think obviously Arizona had a bit of a down game uh, this week, but I think we sh- they showed that they're still a good team, and it's just about getting things to click. I don't know if Tampa Bay have the game plan to perhaps take advantage as well as the Patriots did. Tampa Bay are a very explosive team, but as we saw last year, also somewhat of a fragile team uh, that get these huge momentum swings, but then they also go away from them when the team is doing badly. Now the team may have matured, and this may be different this year, but that remains to be seen. So I think on that base, you have to say, look. This is going to be. This could be a lot closer than we think it's going to be. But right now, despite the results last week, Arizona still have the pedigree, and Arizona still look like they have the ability defensively and offensively to get this done against Tampa Bay. Uh, Carson Palmer spends the entire week now slowly thinking about how the window's not closing; it's already closed, and he's a fly flying against it because, yeah. It's all in his head. He's going to fuck it up. Uh, I, I really don't know why I picked Tampa Bay here. Uh, I think they're fun offensively. Arizona will probably not be able to make all the adjustments they need to deliver this quickly. And I think it might be a bit of a trap for them because I don't think they were preparing for this as much as they were preparing for the New England game. Uh, that could all change, but yeah, that's why. Uh, Seattle at, at the LA Rams. Uh, I've taken Seattle. Harry's taken LA and Fitz has taken Seattle. Fitz, why Seattle? Do we need well, to ask? Firstly... Fuck LA. <laughs> fuck Jeff Fisher. Fuck Greg Williams. Fuck Aaron Donald. When if they injure Russell Wilson, I swear to God, I'm gonna fucking kill one of those three. I'm <laughs> but yeah, like the Seahawks should win this on paper, based on what LA showed in their first game, based on the fact that Jeff Fisher is coaching them. What's your but punch game logic, like? <laughs> but this is the Twilight Zone game in the NFL, so fuck if I know why the Seahawks should win. They probably should on paper, but. Ah, fuck if I know what's going to actually happen. Yeah, that's why I've taken LA. Like, this is the LA fucking... Like, they're still the Rams. So, they go and they get blown out by San Fran, and now they're probably going to go and beat Seattle. Because, you know what? That's what they do. Because they don't make any sense. Because there is no cohesion. But also, this team always plays well against Seattle, and always plays really badly against San Fran. No matter how good or bad both these teams are, it makes no sense. Something weird is going to happen. Russell Wilson's leg is going to fly off, hit Doug Baldwin in the head and concuss him. Uh, and then, I don't know, the Aaron Donald will come in at quarterback and throw three touchdowns. Like I, 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 It's just stupid. So I'm picking LA because this is the kind of game they win because they really, really have no business winning it. Will Greg Williams have like a giant novelty check for the defender who manages to do that? No, Greg Williams will come out, uh, come out and run over Tyler Lockett in a snowplow. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> in LA, right? A snowplow. That's, uh, that, that's Harry's Stone Cold Lock of the Week. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right it is. 
Uh, next game, Oakland at Atlanta. We've all taken Oakland. Uh, I think just they looked very good offensively. They look weak defensively. But hey, in theory, that's what Atlanta are. And Atlanta aren't as good at either of those things. So I'm going to take Oakland in that scenario. Jacksonville at San Diego. We've taken Jacksonville across the board. Fitz, why Jacksonville? They look good against Green Bay, who are one of the best teams in the league. San Diego have lost Keenan Allen. That's a massive loss, as we discussed before. Therefore, based on that balance of facts, you pretty much have to go for Jacksonville in this case. No, of course. Uh, Indianapolis at Denver. We've all taken Denver across the board. Harry? Yeah, I just no faith in that Indy O-line, really. I think that Denver's defense is going to be good enough to pressure lock and take away his options and then just basically do their game plan, dink and dunk, pound the ball all over Indianapolis, really, at this point. The only potential issue, I think, here is that if, following all the discussion of their hard-hitting, helmet-helmet assault nature uh, comes into play, it's also Andrew Luck, the great white hope quarterback, that they might start calling those things a lot more quickly. Yeah, it could be tough flags, that's but, true. Um, but, yeah, no, like, Denver are just a far class, like, a far top-to-bottom better team. Um, Green Bay, Minnesota... We've all taken Green Bay. Reason being, Minnesota couldn't get shit done uh, this weekend against Exotic Smash Mouth. They're sure as fuck not going to get shit done against uh, Aaron Rodgers and what he was pulling together. And finally, one that we have not actually got all the picks in for yet. Philly at Chicago. I've gone Philly. Fitz has gone Chicago. Harry is gone. The sweet release of death. (laughs) Who are you going to go with, though? Oh, Do I have to pick one? Yep. Um, I'll go with... Wait, are you going to make me defend it? Yeah. Shit. <laughs> uh, do you know what? Okay, okay. I will... Phil's on his own too much, so I'm going to go with Chicago. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so, Fitz, why Chicago? Well, the real loser in this game is Monday Night Football. They really need to pick better games. <laughs> yeah. Secondly, I think Chicago, they're average. They did some good things. I think that Philly team flattered to deceive against what looked like a pretty bad Cleveland team against a hurt quarterback during most of the game. I think Chicago have a thought like... John Fox teams are good at winning against bad to, you know, average teams. I think they should have enough to think on a Philly team, which just still continues to have way too many weaknesses. Like, Philly can't afford all the drops that they had week one against an anyway decent team. And I think Chicago fit that profile of being somewhat decent. Yeah, see, the thing is, I just, I see this being a terrible game of football and I just, I just see Philly edging it. I don't know why, like, because I, I, I do quite like a lot of the pieces in Chicago, but, you know... I obviously have. I like the coach who's in who's in Philly now. Uh, I like the style of football they play uh, to an extent. <laughs> uh, you know when it works. That's when I like it. Uh, but Chicago just seem to be a team that can crumble relatively quickly, and like the only move they've got is just throw the deep ball up for it to be caught. And I don't know. I just I think we'll see a boring but more complete game plan out of Philly. Okay. Well, I've actually thought of something now. So, yeah, I have. Uh, now you've so, rationalised yeah, Now I've choice. rationalised it. I've rationalised my choice. I'm resigned to my fate. Um, to be fair, like, I don't think Chicago are entirely one-dimensional. Uh, like, Langford looked okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie Royal does give them something in short routes over the middle if they can uh, sort of actually, you know, not find themselves in a hole having to try and hoof it up. Now, you're relying on Jacob to be patient, which is up and down sometimes. But, I mean, if you look at Philly, like, their success came against... And I, I feel quite good about this. Well, not good because obviously it's quite sad for him. But when I, you asked, we asked last week who's the worst corner going to be, Joe Hayden got burned by Nelson Aguilar last week. Yeah. Like, Philly were playing a Browns team uh, defensively, were completely all over the shop. Chicago are a little bit more organized on defense, even without McPhee. So I think that's going to make a difference. They're going to be facing a lot more pressure. They're going to have a young, inexperienced quarterback facing 
like an NFL caliber defense, I want to say. So, it will, albeit not a fantastic one. So, I think that's going to make the difference. They're going to pressure uh, pressure him into mistakes, and uh, Chicago are just going to be able to grind this one out at home. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, those are our picks for the week. Uh, yeah, we'll see how they go. I think Harry is one ahead in the picks column uh, after week one. Uh, Sean, who was doing quite poorly, kind of came back a little bit towards the back end with his uh, hero pick of the 49ers and whatnot. Uh, but, yeah. That was good. So, any other crack yourselves, lads, this week? Any any plans? No, I'm I'm back to work after my uh, my glorious NFL time off tomorrow, which I'm really not looking forward to. But that's uh, that's life. Got some political stuff on with the Green Party during the week as well, so that's going to take up most of my time. I'm going to get time to edit this actually. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. What about yourself, Ronan? Any crack? Oh, it's quite a week planned. Just uh, get work done and uh, work on this whole management lark, you know. Yeah. Uh, not too dissimilar. I've got a lot of reading to do. I'm reading a whole lot of insurance regulation at the moment. Yay! Um, but yeah, I've, I'm actually I'm probably going to have to watch the games on my own this Sunday because uh, for our non-Irish listeners, the All Ireland final is on, which is when it's an Ar- it, the country final, like the 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 Super Bowl of uh, Gaelic football. Uh, so what that means is about ninety to one hundred and fifty thousand people descend on Dublin to come watch it. Now in this case, Dublin are. Uh, I happen to live beside the fucking stadium where it's on, uh, and the whole place is a fucking shambles afterwards. So I'm gonna lock myself in the house on Sunday evening, and I'm not going outside for love nor money. Yeah. So I suppose as always, uh, get us on Twitter, get us on Facebook, get us on all of those kind of things. Uh, send us in your questions. We'll try and time it so we get to a few of them next week instead. Um, but yes, was bye from myself, bye from Harry, goodbye, bye from Ronan. Bye. Thanks for listening to All Four Quarters, and we'll catch you all next week.